cats and kittens. We are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the BrandoCast. It is the first official BrandoCast of the year, 2022. And let me say this. When I was in college, I was surrounded by a lot of talented motherfuckers. A lot of people who went on to conquer Hollywood. People like David Schwimmer on a golf tire and a gun and so many more. But there was not one person more talented than my guest today. Right out of the gate as a freshman, this guy showed up at Northwestern and said, I am here to kick ass and take names. He is the star of stage and screen. And he was killed too early in Hawkeye. That's all I have to say about that. I agree. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Brian Darcy James. Hey, Brendan. <laughs> you knew me before I had my fancy middle name in there, before I joined the <laughs> union. I just regular old Brian James. No apostrophes, no small Ds. It, yeah, it was boring back then. Okay, no timeout. Now, the the Brian James before you. Was that the the guy who was in a ton of like action movies and he was yeah, always kind yeah. of a villain? <laughs> in fact, yeah, he spelled his name B-R-I-O-N. And this is a weird, weird story right out of the bat, off the bat. My uncle was the uh, executive producer of Blade Runner. His name was Brian Kelly. And uh, in that movie, there's a guy named Brian James. And he always thought that was hilarious. And so I always knew who Brian James was from uh, from like 1982 or whenever that movie came out. Cut to me being on the road uh, doing Les Mis. And uh, I was in L.A., and I get a call from this random person. They said, Brian James, is this you? And I said, yes, it is. They said, we've been looking for you. We were, ca- we were casting a film and we wanted to see if you were available. And I said, I can't. I'm in a musical called Les Mis right now. And they said, oh, that's too bad. We loved you in Enemy Mine. We loved you in Public uh, uh, Blade Runner. And I was like, oh, no, you, need, you mean the other legitimate actor, Brian James? <laughs> the tall, ugly guy who just worked all the fucking time. Yeah, he was a great actor. He's great in The Player, too. The, the Robert Altman film, oh he plays God. a studio head in that, which, which was such a great kind of turn. But we're not here to talk about Brian James. No, no, no. Brian James. We're here to talk about you. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to talk to you. I Full disclosure, you know, early on when I started this podcast, I wanted uh, Brian to come on, and we just could never find the time, never figure it out. But here we are. I'm so excited to have you as the first guest of 2022. I'm um, so happy to be here, Brendan. I really am. Uh, Thanks is that- for having me. Do you have a Christmas tree behind you? What's going yeah, on here? It's right there. It's, the lights aren't up. We, we'll probably keep it up till February. <laughs> That's a pro move. If you got a good yeah. tree like you do. Yeah. Uh, fan goddamn-tastic. All right. As I mentioned, <laughs> I would just want to get this business out of the way. Because as I mentioned at the top of the show, you died too early on in Hawkeye. By the way, spoiler alert, nerds. If you haven't seen the fucking Hawkeye series... That's on you right now. But I was so excited to have you in the MCU because I didn't know you played uh, Kate Bishop's father, the lovely Haley Stansfield. Uh, And I said, okay, um, is he going to be a good guy? Is he going to be a bad guy? And then, boom, you die in the Battle of New York. (laughs) Yeah, so so as you know, like I can't say a thing about about a thing. Um, but, but all I know is, is that I have learned that in the, uh, the Marvel universe, if you don't see the body, then, then, you know, anything's possible. And, and I'm, again, I'm not insinuating anything. These are my goals and wishes and dreams that I'm sending out to the, uh, <laughs> my possible future employers, but I just want to just make them aware of that, that, you know, that part of their, um, of their world. That's one of the rules. Okay, I had a nerd discussion with my brothers last night in anticipation of you coming on the show today because I agree, we agree with you. We didn't see the body. We didn't see you die. We know that right. somehow there was an explosion in your fancy apartment. Your daughter is a young Kate Bishop, and then you're just gone, and Vera Farmiga has a reaction to you being gone. But yes, I agree, Kevin Foggy, if you're listening to this podcast, because I know you do. Let's bring him back and bring him back as a bad guy. Cause I, I felt like, Hmm, th- did, but did, did you have at least, did you have fun? 
Did you I have a blast? Okay, good. I had a blast. Um, my episode uh, was directed by Reese Thomas, who who I I knew just just by reputation because I'm a huge documentary now fan, and uh, I I really enjoyed working with him. And his uh, I was just I was just happy to be able to kind of talk to him about that and pick his brain about you know how they came up with those great ideas with uh, Hater and, and Armisen and and uh, and Seth Meyers and I I, I just love that and I thought it was really cool that someone of, of, you know, his ilk was tasked with doing this, this huge, you know, this huge effort with a, with a Marvel series, which I think he did really, really well. Everyone did across the board, but um, that was one aspect of it. Vera is fantastic. I did most of my stuff with her and uh, uh, she was super welcoming. You know, it's, 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 it's tricky sometimes when you're kind of inserted into a machine that is running and it's been there up and running for a while. And when I came in, you know, it can be a little daunting. It's kind of like the the transfer from from school, you know, like a grade school kid coming into a new school. It's like, who's going to be the kid that kind of, you know, says, hey, come sit with me at lunch. You know, <laughs> and, and that, that's what Vera was. She was like, yeah, come on over here. It's fine. The water's the water's warm. Had, had you ever worked with Vera in New York? Well, no, no, we never crossed paths, but we, we talked a lot. We have a lot of friends in common. I would imagine so. Uh, people should know, uh, you know, just Google Brian Darcy James and you'll be fucking blown away uh, because, uh, you know, the guy's talented and he's been in so many uh, amazing shows right now. I think also you were just in the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. Working yeah. on a new series yeah. uh, with some ancient mutual friends of ours. Can you say anything about that? Yes, I can. Yeah, I, I, I find myself saying this impossible sentence out loud. I am the executive producer of a new CBS sitcom called How We Roll, starring the incredibly funny Pete Holmes. And uh, it will air March 31st at 9.30 p.m. That's our premiere date. Um, yeah, it's about a guy from my hometown of Saginaw, Michigan, named Tom Smallwood, who lost his job working at GM for 10 years on a factory line and decided that he was going to make things right by uh, becoming a professional bowler. And so he comes home and tells his wife that that's his plan. She's like, all right, that's kind of crazy, but I love you. I'll support you. You got a year. Let's see what happens. And in that year, he won the PBA championship. So it's this incredible, you know, you know, underdog story. And I'd never heard that story um, or, or even heard of Tom, to, to be honest. And when I did, uh, it just struck me as such a great representation of my hometown. And I, I love where I'm from. And um, I could kind of relate, you know, being a kid growing up in Saginaw, wanted to do this thing that not everybody wanted to do is like, how do you become an actor when you're from wherever you're from? And uh, he had the same, same trajectory of like, well, I want to do this thing. I'm not quite sure how to do it, but I'm going to try. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm producing it with a friend of ours, David Hollander who uh, we went to school together with. And uh, he's an incredible uh, bona fide, you know, 800 pound gorilla of a TV producer and writer and director. And um, I think he wouldn't mind me calling him an 800 pound gorilla. I he think would I not. Think. Nope. He would not. <laughs> but anyway, it's been, it's been um, a kind of remarkable, um, miraculous thing to kind of jump through all the hoops and find ourselves in the situation where we're actually in production halfway through and uh, have five more episodes to shoot before we start airing on uh, on CBS. Congratulations. Thank you. It is impossible to get things done in the City of Angels. It is impossible to take idea to studio, to network, to execution, to air. But, uh, you know, hey, congratulations. And I'm rooting for all of you guys. I think our friend Betsy Thomas. Betsy, the show, indeed, my Betsy Thomas is there. She's incredible. And I have learned so much, by the way. I mean, you know, this is my usual job is to to get hired. And if I'm lucky to get a job to go do do the job, act in it. But, you know, this has been baptism by fire for sure to kind of figure out every nook and cranny of how how TV is made. And, you know, all of the people, all of the people that are so good and I've been doing this for a long, long time who just, you know, are reflexively just, just do it. Like, you know, they're falling out of bed. So it's been a, it's been a learning curve for me, for sure. Dude, that's so awesome. I'm so excited for you. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. Uh, see, this is why I love Come you because you know, <laughs> you know, you know it all. Yeah. Michigan seems like a dream to me now. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, okay. there's another there's another great song by about Saginaw by uh um the 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 late great um uh Mike Nesmith. Um do you know that one? Uh, no. Wait, what um, what what? I think, I think, no. I think it's called If I Ever Get Back to Saginaw. Oh. I, think, I think that's the title. 
Anyway. Wait, doesn't Seeger have a song about meeting a girl in a bar in Saginaw and getting on a motorcycle and rolling away or anything like that? No, but but uh, Down on Main Street is about Ann Arbor, so that's an hour away. That, that counts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, this is kind of a good segue because I think we're going to talk a lot about Michigan um, today on the BrandoCast because when I asked Mr. Uh, Mr. Brian, to come on the show, I said, you know, what kind of artist do you want to talk about? Who was an artist that inspired you as a young dude? And uh, let's just imagine uh, a young Brian Darcy James in Saginaw listening to the following artist. William Martin Joel, born on May 9th, 1949, is an American singer, songwriter, composer, and pianist. Commonly nicknamed The Piano Man after his first major hit and his signature song of the same name, Joel has had a massive career as a solo artist since the 1970s. He is one of the best-selling music artists of all time, as well as the sixth best-selling recording artist and the third best-selling solo artist in the U.S. with over 150 million records sold worldwide. Billy Joel, tell me, Brian, about your love of the piano man. Well, I mean, he, he figures into my life, in, 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 and I'm not alone, I know, but with this, but uh, when I was in eighth grade, um, my first real public performance was this thing called Academic Track. I don't know if you had that where you grew up, where it was basically where, t- where schools would compete against each other scholastically, that's the academic, and the track version is competition. And then there'd always be a performance aspect to it as well for like additional points to see who would win. And I sang Piano Man in the gym of my my grade school, uh, um, accompanied by Mike Basil, who, <laughs> who, who knew how to play the piano. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I, I and I recently found this this picture of me. I'm wearing like like dark corduroys and a yellow sweater with like top siders. Can you just imagine? And, and one of those like Gene Rayburn mics from um, <laughs> the long cord. And it is, it, it's such a, you know, I, I hadn't seen that picture in a long time, but the memory of doing that was really the first time I actually sang out loud. And my parents, I think were, were stunned because they'd never really heard me sing it. And, and incidentally, I, I kind of had this experience as a parent with my daughter she was in a, a musical and we never heard her sing. And she opened her mouth and she can sing like a dream. So I, I can understand how my parents, maybe if I'm not saying I sang like a dream then, but I'm just saying it was something that they hadn't really experienced, you know, me doing publicly, but I loved it anyway. So that was the song I used because I knew that song. And then just from there, another kind of pivotal moment was there was an HBO uh, concert. I think, I think it was, um, I think he was playing in long Island and, uh, this, this must have been like 82. And, and I was watching it with my sister and my dad came in and, you know, he, he kind of sat down and, you know, it, I, I love my dad. And he, he was like, Hey, who's this? And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's Billy Joel. And he listened, he goes, Oh yeah, I know, I know that song. And he said, this guy's really good. And it was the first time where I thought like, you know, the, the, the old and the young were kind of like, yeah, we think the same thing. <laughs> and it was this kind of weird, like acknowledgement that, that, I, this is the antithesis of cool. If I'm listening to my parents to get a, you know, approval about what, what is good music, but um, something about that was like, I, I didn't need that affirmation, but it, I do remember thinking that, Oh, wow, that's interesting that he likes him too. But from there, I was just kind of uh, sold. I, I just got, a, I was obsessed with him. I just knew every single thing. And, you know, I had a small little group of friends and we all felt the same way. And we're just kind of complete Billy Joel nerds. Well, we are, we are the same age. I feel like Billy Joel was one of the first artists that I became aware of as a young kid because The Stranger was such a massive record. And I remember one of the hot teachers, not a nun, but one of the hot teachers at St. Bernard's and Mount Lebanon, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, she loved that record. And so because the hot teacher, Mrs. Scrow, liked Billy Joel, it made me like Billy Joel. (laughs) Um, How long did that last, Brendan? 
Oh God, who knows? I mean, <laughs> I I didn't I, I was not successful with Mrs. Scrow. I couldn't I couldn't quite make that happen as a, a third grader, a fourth grader. No, no, I'm not talking about your relationship <laughs> with the teacher. Your interest in Billy Joel is what I was asking. Uh, it lasted for about two years. Okay, <laughs> because because Billy Joel and Elton John were immediately replaced by ACDC and Van Halen. Yeah. I had a, a bit of a crossroads myself because because my neighbors across the street they they had the uh, the KTEL like get six hundred <laughs> records for a penny thing, and they kind of fell into the Judas Priest, the ACDC, and they kind of went down that road. So I was really exposed to that, and I always listened to that. And you know, I I I liked it. I I do, and I, I'm not a, I'm not like a true fan, but I definitely know you know that '80s kind of metal that was popping up in the in the early '80s. Um, I was definitely kind of absorbing that, but something about the Elton John and the Billy Joel kind of percussive um, piano uh, storytelling, you know, uh, songwriting was appealed to me. I don't know. Maybe it was just kind of my sensibility that, you know, is reflected as, as you know, as someone who wanted to be an actor. But I don't know. I don't know. I just kind of gravitated towards that rather than but, the form. But the interesting thing about your choice of the piano man, like if I think about like all of the big giant rock and pop hits of the time piano man is that's a hard song but i i think about it in this way with you you're a phenomenal musical theater performer yeah billy joel is almost musical theater yeah you know in a way the way that his songs are structured uh they always tell an incredible story yeah uh, and, and piano man you know, in the days before, if you're a rock star, you could get a musical made about your life on Broadway. But in the days before that, it's it's just a very interesting thing. And I'm wondering, like, what what drew you to that song specifically? I think probably it was I knew it the most. So mm -hmm. I just I just knew it. So I felt like I, I knew I, I didn't know it completely, but I'd heard it enough to feel like, oh, I, I get that song. I know the melody. I just have to learn the words now a little bit better. Um, and so that was probably what drew me to it, to be honest. But you mentioned the theatricality of his of his music, you know, cut to about, I don't know how many years later in New York, before Moving Out became a Broadway show that Twyla Tharp uh, designed. There was another Broadway uh, attempt to create a show out of his catalog of music. And I actually was in this little group of actors that was presenting it to him um, in the hopes that he would say yes. What? And that was a crazy experience because we we did three songs kind of as a proof of concept uh, for the, the performance aspect of it, mostly for the choreography. Um, and at this point, the 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 uh, his his catalog was in the hands of another producer. And uh, and so we did this thing and there he was in the front row. And I remember I remember him tapping his feet. To, to the song, you know, whatever the song we were doing. And I think I was thinking, oh, that's a good sign. At least he's he's engaged in the music. Um, and I do distinctly remember afterwards, you know, I was so um, excited and, and nervous about doing this thing because I didn't know what he would think. And there was a, a Rolling Stone article that I remember reading, you know, back in the day. And the first, the first uh, paragraph, the writer is saying, Billy Joel rose up on the Upper West Side and he parks his Harley and he gets off his Harley, takes off his glasses and he says, this city is so fucked up. <laughs> and so I always had that in my mind as like, that's like what Billy Joel is. Yeah. So I think that was probably informing him, informing me with the first words I said to him upon meeting him. I said, now that I've shit my pants, I'd like to say hello. That's what I said to Billy Joel after having done that. And you didn't get a laugh. He just kind of looked at me like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Why are you saying such weird and crude things to me? Um, but anyway, it was a moment. It was a great moment. Wow, dude. That I had absolutely no idea. That is a phenomenal story. Um, holy Christ. Well, let's play another kind of uh, Billy Joel Broadway-ish song. We're going to play Captain Jack in the background. Billy Joel was born in 1949 in the Bronx, and he grew up on Long Island, both places that influenced his music. Growing up, 
Joel took piano lessons at the insistence of his mother. After dropping out of high school to pursue a musical career, Joel took part in two short-lived bands, The Hassles and Attila. Attila. <laughs> That's so fucking genius, Attila. He kicked off his solo career in 1971 with his first release, Cold Spring Harbor. In 1972, Joel caught the attention of Columbia Records after a live radio performance of the song Captain Jack became popular in Philadelphia. Hmm. Joel then signed with Columbia and released his second album, Piano Man, in 1973. Captain Jack, go get you high tonight. <laughs> I, I love, I if people want to play along with the podcast, they should Google ancient pictures of Billy Joel trying to be a rock and roll guy in Attila because it's so genius. And Long Island cranks out tons of hard rock people, but... Um, it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> you know that story about Cold Spring Harbor, his first album? You probably know this. Um, uh, but apparently, he, he's not fond of that album because when they mastered it or mixed it, I can't remember what, what, what part of the process, but in the, the final result was a mix that had the recording speed a little higher than what it normally is. So his voice is ramped up speed-wise. And so he has a higher timbre and a higher kind of like he even talks about this as being like, I sound like I'm like Mickey Mouse. And if you listen to that album, you, he has, he does have this kind of like, he sounds, he sounds, he sounds like it's been manipulated to be faster. So if you listen to that album, that that's an interesting thing to kind of, to hear as you're listening to it. Um, have you ever had a similar experience with your voice being overproduced or something like that? No, not, not to that degree where I, I was, I was listening to it and I thought, Oh my God, that's not me. That's not right. No, no, I, nothing. That nothing comes to mind that that fits that bill. Okay, well, you're you're a lucky dude. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, the thing I want to know is how does young Brian get from piano man to sort of then the next step? Did you start singing a lot after that? After that performance, did you start doing musical theater in high school? Yeah. Where, where did it all start for you? Yeah. Well, I always say this. My, my sister was two years older than me. She was always, she was, she just loves musical theater. She is now a, a, a theater educator at a new church high school on the North shore of Chicago, a beloved teacher there. And uh, she was always super into musicals and my family would take us down to Detroit to see, you know, touring shows and stuff. They loved, they loved music. They loved um, theater. Uh, so that was kind of like, I, I knew what theater was, but when I started seeing my sister do it, and and kind of recognizing that you know by day she was just this normal high school person and then at night going to see her in this show was like she had transformed along with everybody else into this like like how did they how did they do that like how how could you possibly be someone else in so kind of in such a fascinating and beautiful way i was i was really fascinated by that and i just love always loved music and so did she we were always singing around the house so kind of watching her do that, uh, you know, kind of paved the way for me to kind of st stick my toe in the water. That's really how. And then I just started doing musicals. And, you know, it's it's really, you know, I feel fortunate because it was the kind of thing that gave me uh, a backbone in the sense of of feeling like I knew I could do it. I felt comfortable doing it and I loved singing. So it always it gave me a voice, really. It gave me it gave me something to feel like, and those years are tough because you're just kind of trying to figure out who the, who the hell am I and what's going on? You know, what's happening to my body? Um, <laughs> so you're having all these kind of strange transitions. And that was the one thing that I always felt confident doing. I was always really small. I always loved sports and I was always on the sports teams, but by like ninth grade, I remained four foot five and everyone grew to like five, eight, five, ten, and were just like killing me. You know, I was a on the football team. And I remember one time I just got leveled on like an offside block. And I was like, no, this is, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, basketball was the same thing. I, speaking of which I have a funny story about that. I, I, um, I was on the, uh, the basketball team for my JV year and, uh, JV years, my, the two years, ninth and 10th. And we have this, you went to St. Bernard's, you said? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You, you might be able to read this. I went to St. Stephen's mm -hmm. and our arch rival was St. Pete's. And it was like, you know, it was cataclysmic, this, this, you know, anytime our sports teams would meet. And it was the event of the, of the city. And uh, there was a, a, game, a pivotal game. We met them twice during the season. The first game, 
was the, you know, the big time. Everyone's excited about it. And my buddy Gavin and I decided that we would skip the game to go see Billy Joel down in Ann Arbor and, and basically lie about it <laughs> to our coach. And uh, so I, you know, it, it was, it's sacrilegious to say that we did that, but I, I, I think, no, 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 that's the pro move. That's the pro. That's my, that's what I did, dude, dude. That's what I did at Northwestern to the detriment of my own theater studies. Where where would you do? Were you going to concerts? I have told this, I have told this story on the podcast so many times, but especially as a freshman, I was obsessed with, you know, I grew up going to concerts and uh, you know, I was coming from after Pittsburgh, we moved to Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was, we could take the bus to go see all the shows, ACDC, Rush, Van Halen, Dio, Ozzy, everybody. So by the time I get to Northwestern, I am like a concert veteran and I'm in Chicago. Yeah. Which has everybody. Yeah. And right off the bat, Peter Gabriel came to town. David Bowie came to town the fall when we were freshmen. So when I would look at like the audition schedule, I'd be like, well, yeah, see that (laughs) that show is going to happen when the Grateful Dead are playing at the UIC Pavilion. So I can't audition for that show. Yeah. I lied about I lied to get out of crew once. Um, basically to go to Madison and party, but they knew they, they, they found out and I got a C in costume crew as oh, a freshman, no. which is oh, impossible to get they gave everyone an A because they gave me a C because they Wait. knew that I lied to get was out of crew. Fall? Was this fall quarter or was this the end I, of the year? I know it was fall quarter. Cause it was, I lied to go to Madison for Halloween. So listen to this. You would have been on crew with me and David Hollander making kimonos for Rashomon. Yeah. That, that's the crew that you would have been on. I was on that crew because I remember dressing. Who was the British guy? Who was the lead? Um, he was he was an actor. He was a very serious actor with a British accent. He was the lead of Rashomon. I don't and remember. he was like, oh, that guy's going somewhere. Clancy Brown has made it, but this guy's this fucking asshole is going somewhere. And I, I, I lied to get out of crew for one weekend. But uh, but I but I closed the show out. I was there. I remember that. Were you were you design, were you making it or were you running it? Uh, I think didn't we do both? Didn't we make the costumes? No, you and were then, either on the run crew or the des- or the design crew. Okay, because uh, so it was the run crew. Because I can imagine myself helping this asshole get into a kimono. Yeah, I, did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that. I did. I made that kimono that you put on him. Okay, That's, okay. No. So I lied to get out of crew one weekend yeah. to go see. Yeah. But anyway, but I, let's go back to you yeah. because your move of going to see Billy Joel in 1982. By the way. Yeah, you know, not at the height. Uh, yes, at the height of one of his powers. The guy has never lost the, the magic, but that's the pro move. I kudos to you. Fuck the basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just great move. Come out, Virginia. Don't any wait. You Catholic girls start much too late. After launching the albums Street Life Serenade in 1974 and Turnstiles in 76. Billy Joel released his critical and commercial breakthrough album, The Stranger, in 1977. So that's when Mrs. Scrow had that fucking record. This album became Columbia's best-selling release to that date, selling over 10 million copies and spawning several hit singles, including Just The Way You Are, Moving Out, Anthony's Song, Only The Good Die Young, She's Always A Woman, and Scenes From A Fucking Italian Restaurant. Uh, that's one of Joel's favorites, and that has become a staple of his live shows. The Stranger won two awards at the 1978 Grammys, including Record of the Year, as well as Song of the Year for Just the Way You Are. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> that's so. so if we fast forward a couple of years, yes. not to dismiss that amazing album, and I knew those songs mm-hmm. from Radio Play, mm-hmm. but my fir- one of my first albums that I got, got as a, as a, I remember it was my birthday. I think it was my 13th or 12th birthday, whatever the year glass houses came, you know, it came out. That was, that was the thing that really solidified like my, 
my interest and my my just kind of undying support of Billy Joel because that that just was like on I just played it all the time and of course back in the day it was an experience of you know opening it up reading the lyrics and kind of having the tactile sense of like putting lyrics and music together and understanding what he was doing with songwriting all that stuff was really appealing to me so that's really kind of like where I started getting on board I fucking uh, tell me about that show. Tell me about skipping basketball and going to see that live concert. Tell me about that show because I have never seen Billy Joel. Luckily, I am going to uh, my girlfriend Julia got us tickets to go see him at Madison Square Garden in April. I'm so fucking excited for oh, that. That's great. But tell me about seeing him live as a young dude. Well, well, I will answer that, but I will say that the I recently saw him at Madison Square Garden as well. I was really excited. I've seen him there a couple of times, but most recently on his kind of his uh, what would you call it like his sit down uh, his you know, he's just there every month, which is amazing. Um, and I took my daughter, uh, who at that time, I think was a junior or senior in high school. And I, I told you this story, but but. You know, I, I was excited to go for myself, but I was also excited to see what she would think. And she loved it. She loved the, the music. She loved the concert. She she knows way more music, music than I do. Um, but I said, what'd you think, Grace? And she's like, well, it was, was really great. I loved it. She goes, but you know what it really was? It was a bunch of middle-aged white guys playing invisible pianos on their thighs. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of sums up the concert experience of Billy Joel. You just look, next time you're there, just take a look around and you'll just see like expert piano players, just like really, really, really playing angry young man on their invisible piano on their thigh. I well, thought that was a hilarious observation. I have, uh, I, no, I yeah. have tons of experience with watching uh, arenas filled with uh, middle-aged white dudes air drumming to rush. <laughs> exactly. It's the same idea. It's the same yeah. idea. Oh my God. I love it. Grace, you're but amazing. That concert, you know, it's funny. I don't have, I don't, it's, this is weird. Cause I don't have like, like crystallized images or, or, or memories of that experience. I mostly just remember traveling down there. Mm -hmm. And I also remember just feeling like I'd never been in a concert before, you know? So that was that, that the experience of just that, that huge wall of sound, like that communal thing of like, we're here for an, an event and just that excitement and energy was something I'd never experienced. Um, this is a total, 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 total sidetrack here. Great. So I, I, my actual first time going to a concert wasn't necessarily as a, as a, uh, like a real concert goer. It was like in 78 in Saginaw. And my dad and I had gone to an event next to the Saginaw Civic Center, which was the arena where some of the bigger acts would play. And there was also kind of like a, an event center that was attached to it. And, and my dad was a lawyer and he was a, he was a fundraiser for politics. So we were probably doing something in that regard. We were coming by the, the thing, the uh, arena and my dad knew one of the cops and, and he said, Hey, what's going on tonight? And he goes, Oh, it's uh, I don't know, it's Alice Cooper. <laughs> he goes, you want to take a look? And my dad's like, sure. So my dad and I walk into the, the civic center and I just, this, I remember as clear as day. I remember being on like on the upper level, like far, far away. So the, the, the stage is quite far and, and Alice Cooper is kind of sitting on the edge of the stage, you know, it's like, and it's a, it's a quiet kind of ballad song. And it was like, it there was kind of a, a like a real raucous, weird, dangerous vibe, you know, going on there. <laughs> yeah. At least, at least for me as a kid. Yeah. But this is the thing I remember after a few minutes, my dad goes, Brian, do you smell that? And uh. I said, I said, what? And he goes, do you smell that sweet kind of smoke in the air? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess I do. And he goes, that's marijuana. Don't smoke it. <laughs> so that was, that was uh, my uh, just say no campaign right, right there with Alice Cooper singing below. Okay. One, I'm so jealous because that seeing Alice Cooper in 1978 yeah, that's advanced because we yeah. were we were young dudes. We were I didn't so know small. What I was watching. I just oh felt uncomfortable God. and scared. Well, also you're in a place where all the professional partiers in your town and the surrounding area, like all the all stars of partying, were yeah. there that night in that yeah. room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a definite sense of purpose in that regard in that room. I felt it for sure. Was like, it was I want to go. I want to go home and watch Love Boat. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god, it was dangerous. <laughs> what I, I do feel like it is it is like a little a little feather in my cap to say that I saw Alice Cooper in the 70s. Yeah, it is. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? 52nd Street was released in 1978 and became Billy Joel's first album to peak at number one on the Billboard 200 charts. Joel tried to give the album a fresh sound, hiring various jazz musicians to differentiate it from his previous record. 52nd Street was one of the first of four Joel albums to top the Billboard charts, and it earned him two Grammys. Three songs reached the top 40 in the U.S., My Life, Big Shot, and Honesty. Billy Joel released his seventh studio record, Glass Houses, in 1980, in an attempt to further establish himself as a rock and roll artist. This album featured It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, which was Billy Joel's first single to top the Billboard 100 chart. You may be right, Don't Ask Me Why, and Sometimes a Fantasy were also on this record. Billy Joel won a Grammy for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance for his work on Glass Houses, Glass Houses, which you, uh, which you mentioned before. Yeah. And I can easily see you crushing It's Still Rock and Roll to Me. Yeah, I, I like I love that song. My favorite song on that album is All for Lena. I, I just love that song so much. Um, well, the, I'm going to play us out with that song then great, at the great. end of the show. Oh, that's a great call. Um, what else? So, okay, so so you've seen Alice Cooper in 1978. You get to see Billy Joel in early, the early 80s. What else were you listening to uh, as a young dude? Yeah, so so as I was, you know, I, you know, Billy Joel. It's like eating. If you just eat the same thing every day, you get you get a little tired of it. And you think, well, maybe I should try some potatoes, or maybe I should try some salad, or something. Um, and for whatever reason, I started gravitating to the kind of the the kind of new wave kind of punk sound that was a pop thing, kind of like the the Joe Jacksons and the. I mean, that's a little bit more standard or or traditional, I guess. But um, the the XTCs and the Squeeze. Uh, that that's that's the kind of thing that I started listening to like later in high school, and I, I remain like big big fans of of Squeeze and XTC. Um, so that that was kind of like what what carried me into college, and was was you know I, I wouldn't say it was like the lifeblood of the music I was listening to because I've I've always been kind of a pop music fan. Uh, I remember you know back in the high life was a huge huge success right when we were going to college in eighty six eighty seven. Um, so. I don't know. I, li- I like the kind of like that. The Steve Winwood sound is like definitely organ piano based. And I guess I'm always kind of drawn to that, you know, as my kind of bedrock of what I, what I like musically pop wise. Um, but yeah, you know, the XTC stuff and the, and the, uh, I mean, do you remember when uh, Adam Ant, you know, in, in, in the, you know, with MTV and 82 and all that stuff, that was kind of intriguing to me. And it was the, the production of those song- songs were, were different and just was, was kind of a different sound. And I always, I always liked that it was poppy, but it was also kind of weirdly raw and, and uh, it had a tinge of electronic, you know, and it was just, it was just something about it that I liked. Oh, well, I love Adam Ant and I love XCC and I love squeeze. So my question is how does that stuff find its way to Saginaw? Was it MT was MTV the conduit for you or was there a radio station in your area that played that stuff? Cause I think back then Unless you had MTV, early MTV, pumping out some of that sort of eclectic British music, yeah. it was hard to find. So how'd you find it? I think through, through Squeeze. I think for Squeeze, I think uh, "Tempted" was the song that was popular and got radio play, and was was you know such a bluesy kind of soulful pop t- song that, again, it's kind of kind of of the Elton John, Billy Joel el- ilk in that sense. But um, I, I think that's kind of what piqued my interest in, in, in squeeze that particular song XTC. That's a really good question. I can't remember exactly how I got turned on to them, but I'm sure it was via someone's handing me a cassette, you know, because that's really the only way if you didn't know it and you didn't have it in your own library of albums or cassettes, you know, it was usually someone either having made a tape or giving you the cassette itself. So, uh, but that's, that's a really good question. Uh, but I'm very grateful for that introduction because, um, yeah, that that you know, their their songwriting is is I just I love it. It's so imaginative. It's so you know, uh, it just really speaks to me. I love them. When we're done with the show, I'm going to nerd out and I'm going to send you a link. I made a 
13 hour playlist of 93 WXRT Chicago kind I of music. I saw this post, yeah. Yeah, circa 1989. And they played a lot of XTC. They played a lot of Squeeze. They played a lot of Bonnie Raitt and Stevie Ray Vaughan. For people listening to the podcast, XRT in Chicago was this very eclectic music station. You know, it wasn't a classic rock station. Uh, you were not going to hear Van Halen on uh, 93XRT, but you were going to hear a lot of the music that you're sort of describing. This eclectic, well-written, well-produced, and just left-of-center music. Um, so I'm going to send you the link because I think you'll get a kick out of it. Because well, there's a is, ton of XTC on that on my list. This is what I love about you is that is that I've come to realize over the years, just just through your posts and just kind of keeping up with what you're doing, is that your 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 passion for music is encyclopedic, encyclopedic, and the fact that you would have an awareness as a freshman in college or whenever, any any year in college, of understanding that XRT was the source that you were going to find a variety of different sounds. I mean, it speaks to your interest in trying to kind of know where the source is and what's coming out of it. And, and also just your, your interest in seeing all the bands that were coming in through Chicago and just, and your desire to go and to see it. I mean, that speaks to your, your passion, which I love. It was, it actually was my education. I, I remember um, if you remember Laura Silber, who was sort of a cool punk rock girl who was in our theater class, um, where to go, like right away. I, I, I realized like, okay, this girl knows where to go in Chicago somehow. This is a punk rock girl. She knows where to go. And she, this is, I remember her telling me Cabaret Metro. So again, to the detriment of my studies, I'm like, I'm going to go to the Cabaret Metro as much as humanly possible. And I'm going to see that band. So my education in Chicago in the mid to late eighties was seeing all of the bands that would set the stage for Nirvana years later, yeah, um, I saw it all, and I'm so proud of that. I remember Yet, I, you're you're a big replacements fan, yeah. Uh, that that was I wanted people to think that I was in the replacements. So I have I remember hearing you say that, and I I have this story. I was flying into Minneapolis once. I think I was doing a show, and I was on tour, and I happened to be sitting next to this guy who was had his headphones on and a Walkman, and he was I mean literally for like an hour. He would listen to, and I could hear the song. It was a, it was a um, Aerosmith song, um, <laughs> and he must have pushed play, then reverse, and he'd play it again. He played again. He did this for like, he did this for like an hour, and as I, I was like, this is interesting. It's also annoying. What's happening here? And I got off the uh, the um, the plane, and I noticed on his bag there was a. Um, a replacements thing on his, uh, on his, the, the bag that he was carrying off the plane. And then I heard someone saying, that's, that's so-and-so I couldn't even tell you who it is, but I know, but I now, I remember it was the bass player for the replacements listening to a bass line on an Aerosmith song. Does that seem possible? You, you just melted my brain. <laughs> But I, I'm pretty sure if my memory serves that that was, Oh, oh it was Tommy Stinson. Okay. Yeah, who fingers crossed will will be on this show in the year twenty twenty two. I hope so too. I just saw him play at a church in Silver Lake a month ago. Um, that was the person that I aspired to be when I was in school. Like wow. I, I wanted to be Tommy Stinson rather than Craig Bierko. Does that make any sense <laughs> to you? <laughs> Both excellent choices. You just went one way <laughs> I know. instead of the other. Um, wow, dude. That's incredible. Yeah. I love yeah. that story. I, uh, remember, you, I thought of that immediately when I heard that you were such a huge fan. Like, oh, I, I'm pretty sure I sat next to one of the, 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 the uh, band members of The Replacements. Fucking unbelievable. <laughs> I, I, you know, I wish my, see, I'm so weird that I am like the ultimate music person who doesn't have that final switch to be a musician. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, and I can sing. I think if you've heard the show, you might know. And I, God, I wish I could show you video of it for many years before the pandemic on my birthday, I would put together a rock band because I, all my friends in LA, yep. so many of them are like legit musicians. Yep, so I, I would that. put together a band and I, I had a friend who had a bar in North Hollywood and I would curate the list of like 20 odd songs and do like an hour and 45 minutes of, you know, 
replacements, Black Sabbath, Van Halen, Ramones, ACDC, like my wheelhouse. Cause I can ape that stuff. I can, I can ape Bowie. I can ape Biggie, Iggy pop. I can ape the replacements. You know, I'm not singing in my own voice in a way. Does that make any sense? Like I'm almost doing like a, an, a mega karaoke performance, but I did it for many years before the pandemic. Hollander and Courtney came. David Hollander yeah. and his wife Courtney came. I've um, heard about these shows; they're legendary. Absolutely, no, I, that makes total sense. But I, mean, I, but I didn't have that final, like the final step, you know, that someone like you has, where it it becomes a discipline, uh, and and a sort of a way of life. So. This is a great way to ask you. Okay, so when does your love of singing lock into this is what I want to do? I want to use myself as a vessel. You know, like where does that lock in for you? Definitely at school. Definitely when okay. I met you. Like right right there at college when I and in sophomore year when acting classes started. That's really when it was clear to me that, you know, theater wasn't just something that I would do as a hobby. It was definitely something that I would want to aim for as a profession. And the way that I could actually get experience on the stage um, nine times out of 10 would be through my singing ability. So that was my that was my kind of like, I'm going to lead with the thing that I feel confident with. And um, but but I, I've said this many times. It wasn't until I actually started learning how to act, what acting was and the craft of it and the technique of it and just the approach. I never, ever, ever thought about it in any of those terms. It was just something to do. And when I, when I, when I kind of could understand how you could break down the assembly of a character and rebuild something that you imagined, that's when I got super excited about the idea of becoming an actor professionally. And then also being able to employ the talent of, of, you know, whatever talent I had of like singing as a way in to get, get into a show. And so that, that's really the kind of, the the forging of those two ideas that that would lead to you know uh, a professional a professional life it, it's it is, it's an amazing thing because i've thought about it from my own narcissistic perspective like why didn't i have that final thing to like in the early 90s try to put a band together right you know and i think that the, it's you either are or you aren't does that make sense yeah, I mean, I, I, I that does make sense. I also think that the door is always open. I mean, I think in the case of you know my experience uh, is it just so happened that those two rivers kind of converged at that time, and so it kind of swept me along, and 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 the result is good, and they're, they're, I'm happy with the result. And sometimes you know things converge, and you kind of do something, and like oh this this isn't for me, or it's not working out. But you know, all of which to say is that you know I think there's always you know, it's not a pep talk, but it's just, I do think that there's, there's always an opportunity to, to kind of open the door and say, all right, well, what does this mean for me now? Maybe I can, maybe I can just kind of throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. Um, so yeah, but in my case, I do feel like it was the timing of, of that kind of putting me on a footing at, at that time for, for lack of a better expression. The Nylon Curtain was released in 1982. Maybe that was the tour that Brian saw uh, in Michigan. The album is among Joel's most ambitious efforts, and he's openly acknowledged that it's the recording I'm most proud of and the material I'm most proud of. Nylon Curtain hits include Allentown and Pressure. An Innocent Man was released in 1983 and served as an homage to Joel's favorite genres of music in the 1950s, such as rhythm and blues and doo-wop. The album featured Uptown Girl, Tell Her About It, and The Longest Time, three of Joel's best-known songs. Yeah, innocent it was Man. It was definitely Innocent Man, for sure. That was the concept I saw. I fucking love it. <laughs> An Innocent Man remained on the U.S. pop album charts for 111 weeks, becoming Joel's longest charting studio album behind The Stranger. After releasing The Bridge and Stormfront in 86 and 89, respectively, Joel released his 12th studio album, River of Dreams, in 1993. Billy Joel was elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999. Uh, I, you know, I, I said at the top, we're sort of focusing on classic Billy Joel because he continues to roll on to this day. I'm so excited to see him. Uh, I have finally, after a million years, Brian, 
broken my snobbery of live music, and I am embracing uh, classic rock really for the first time. And you know, because as you know, I had to be that guy. I had to be the cool punk rock guy. I had to be the metal guy. But uh, I'm so excited to see Billy Joel uh, in the fall. I saw the Eagles and the Doobie oh, nice. Brothers. Yeah. Both shows that I would have never, ever, 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 ever gone to in my life. But when you just embrace the madness and embrace the hits and embrace the music, it's super fun. Yeah, I think that says something about like about just growing up, right? And the yeah. idea of music as being something that doesn't necessarily have to identify who you are as a young person, but rather something that is, if it's good, it's good. And if you like it, it makes you feel good, then then it's doing its job. And and I, I feel the same way. Like I all of my kind of like, well, I don't like that because you know I like this. That that doesn't make any sense. But you know, tell that to a, a you know an 18-year-old. It's, it'd be hard to kind of make that, you know, make sense. But I think that told what you just said totally makes sense to me. Yeah, well, I I was I was oddly blown away by both the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles. And you know, I was someone in the early 80s. You know, I hated the Eagles. I hated what they represented. Just in a, in a way, I probably hated Billy Joel back then too, because yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, it's cheesy, it's stupid, it's mainstream, it's dumb. It's not saying anything. But when you're in, a, in a, like a full arena, yes, filled with middle aged white people. But when you're in an arena of eighteen thousand people and you're just hearing nothing but hit, 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 hit. Hit long run, witchy woman, Hotel California, you know, take it to the limits. Yeah, it's it's fucking mind blowing. You know yeah. what I mean? It is. Yeah, the Doobie Brothers, the best of the Doobie Brothers and uh, um, Rock of the Westies by Elton John were the first two albums I got uh, at, at uh, t- records and tapes galore in Saginaw, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is still there, thankfully. Um, but yeah, I remember, I remember, I always loved, um, uh, oh God, what is it? I want to hear that funky Dixieland pretty mama come and take me by the hand. By the uh, hand, by the hand. Yeah. Pretty mama gonna dance called? with the daddy all night long. <laughs> yeah. I always loved that song on the radio. So I think I had like paper, paper route money. And I was like, I had enough to buy two albums. So those are the albums I got. I took a chance on Rock of the Westies. I knew nothing about it. I knew who Elton John was. Um, but, but uh, yeah, those are the two first things that I had in my collection. <laughs> my first record, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, was Elton John's Greatest Hits, uh, where he's in the white tuxedo sitting yeah. at a piano. He's got the hat on. Um, I've, I do fucking love Elton John. Well, I love all British music. That's, uh, you know, not only do I love punk rock, but I'm a total Anglophile um, and I love British music. Um, what are you listening to these days? Anything interesting at all? Well, I'm, I'm like I said, I like I kind of gravitate towards the pop, and I I'm a a progressive fan as well. Um, and I I have you know, do you know the band? I'm, I know you do because you know everything. Jellyfish, do you know the band Jellyfish? I do know the band Jellyfish. I, I love that. I love that sound. I think they only have two albums, studio guys. And and uh, there's an out there's an artist from that group called Jason Faulkner that I really really love. That I've just kind of you know how sometimes songs and music and musicians kind of come back into your rotation. And I've been listening to a lot of Jason Faulkner lately. Um, I'm a huge Kevin Gilbert fan. Do you know who Kevin Gilbert was? He, he was a prog rock kind of God um, who died early, sadly, but he was, um, you know, very instrumental in, in producing um, Cheryl Crow stuff, but he was a, he had his own band called uh, 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 Toy Matinee with a guy named Patrick Leonard, but he came out of the prog world. And um, I'm a huge fan of, of that sound as well. But, you know, when you ask, what am I listening to recently? That's, I just was listening to Jason Faulkner, just kind of, uh, you know, as I do, like every, every six months it kind of come back to him and, you know, that kind of progressive rock sound. Um, that's phenomenal. I have been listening to a lot of Zappa lately. You know, I do, I do a radio show on Sirius XM. Rock Tales with Amit Zappa every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Coast time, uh, where we get to uh, talk to a lot of our rock and roll heroes, although we were blown off by DMC. I've run DMC last week, sadly. just He just forgot to zoom in. Oh, but no. um, but, uh, but Amit has been sending me home with a lot of Zappa records. Um, See, now, I don't so, know. I don't know Zappa. I just yeah. know. I, I couldn't even tell you one song. I just know that when I was introduced to him as, as a young person, I didn't get it. I couldn't understand 
what what it was. I, I think I'm so kind of uh, conditioned to want to hear a melody and just like, you know, I mean, it's such old school, but I, I definitely need to educate myself because I know that he was a true artist and and just was was doing things that nobody else has ever done. I same way. I mean, full disclosure, sorry, Amit, but you know, it, Zappa didn't speak to me as a young kid because, you know, when you love Kiss, uh, it's, I think it's hard to love Zappa at that age, but now I get it. And yeah. I, and I'm kind of blown away by, I mean, you can't even use the word prolific. I mean, all he did was just crank out material. I mean, in a way it's, it's immersion of jazz, um, psychedelic rock, um, and God, so many other things. Um, he was someone who was also heavily inf- influenced by doo-wop. So I have a whole stack of Zappa records to dig through right now, which I've never really done, which is really fun for me because up until this uh, period, I've been listening to nothing but 60s music. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, I, like, like the Turtles, like the Association, like the Fifth Dimension. Hmm. I think, and I, my theory about that is the music that was in the air when I was a baby, 67, 68, 69. Like yeah. if I hear a fifth minute, if I hear up, up, up and away, Same. I'm like, I'm blissed out. Same. My mom had that album. That was like, that's one of my earliest memories that and Burt Backrack. That was <laughs> always, that was always on the, uh, on the, on the uh, record player. Well, and also, you know, I think, I think, you know, that I talked to Dion Warwick briefly I, on this podcast. I heard that episode. Absolutely. So, and again, same thing. Love her, love Burt Backrack, love all, Love every version of any Burt Bacharach song. Um, it's just so it's just so great. And but again, I've been on a '60s jag for a long time. Um, my friend, no, no, it can't be over. <laughs> well, no, this is. Let's just call this round one. Okay, volume one. Because <laughs> I'm going to save squeeze for you down oh, the great. line. Great. You know, after your show comes on the air and it's a big hit, maybe I'll bug you again to talk about great. that. But I, love it. I, I will save squeeze for you because I love different in Tilbrook. Um, is there anything else that you want to throw out there? Promote any other things that you're working on? Um, any sh- movies or or shows featuring yourself that are about to hit the world? Well, I'm wearing I'm wearing this hat, which was a gift for a show, a movie that I just did called uh, "Where All a Light Tends to Go," which is a, a movie that stars Billy Bob Thornton and Robin Wright. And uh, their, Robin's son, uh, Hopper Penn, uh, based on a novel of the same name. And um, that's going to be really interesting. I got to do a, a scene with Billy Bob Thornton, who I absolutely love. Um, so I don't know when that comes out, but it's a, it, it's a really kind of gripping uh, story. And it's an independent film that will be out sometime in the next year, I imagine. So that's cool. I play kind of a, a bad, bad guy in it. And it's, uh, it's, it, was, it was fun to do. I mean, it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a really... Um, kind of harrowing story about a kid wanting to kind of get out of the grips of his meth kingpin father, um, dealing, uh, you know, dealing to a small community in, in, uh, the Appalachians. So, uh, anyway, that's coming up and that, that's pretty cool. Uh, that's fantastic. Billy Bob Thornton gave an incredible eulogy at Gail Zappa's funeral a couple of years ago. Is that right? Uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was intense. It was an incredible story. Uh, not only about his love of the Zappa, uh, Frank Zappa's music and the and the family, but just his own sort of personal connection to it, it was really something I'll never forget. An incredible. I know he's a huge musician. He he's a, he's like a, a a big. He's a musician in his own right, and I know he's a big music fan. And from the little time I spent with him, I can imagine him being extremely considerate and very thoughtful about about something that meant a lot to him. Obviously, but I, I really enjoyed meeting him and working with him for a bit. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, dude, this has been, again, this is just round one. Yeah. This is, there, there's no goodbyes here because, um, right. by the way, thank you for bringing the thunder. You brought some fucking stories today. Oh, that good, are, good, good. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> you, you brought the thunder. You showed up. You showed up. So all can I can talk, say. Can we talk next time we talk? Can we talk about the memory I have etched into my brain uh, meeting you like very early on when you came up to me freshman year and you said, Hey man, I saw your picture on the uh, window of the barbershop on Sherman street. That's you, right? You were convinced you were absolutely convinced that I had modeled <laughs> to be one of the guys, you know, with their haircut in, in the picture. I was like, no, no, Brendan, I, that that's not me. And you're like, you're lying. It is you. <laughs> and I was like, um, I don't know how to convince you that it's not. Uh, <laughs> Do you have any memory of that? I was 
I was out of my mind in 1986. Out of my mind. Terrified of the thought of admitting that I wanted to be a quote unquote theater fag. You know what I mean? <laughs> when they when that word was thrown around like anything. Um, no, I I was out of my mind, but I do remember meeting you because you were so handsome and talented. We did that thing um, our, like a very first day. We did that that that, that little short those those short stories. Well, uh, we were introduced by a, a woman who, and I I think she left school. Her name was Jennifer. And I think she decided that you and me were the two fun guys in our freshman class of misfits and that we should be friends. She, there was a person who was like, you two need to know each other. I swear to God. Because I already knew a couple of people. I knew Courtney Stevens because I'd gone to Carnegie Mellon the summer before oh, wow. to do that theater program. I knew, uh, I knew Courtney. Uh, I think there was one other person that I knew from the outside world, but no, we were we were married together because a a a, a young woman in our class decided that we needed to be friends. Is that right? I yeah, that's what that. that's what I I honestly because I remember we were in that big room yeah, where the A40. class A forty was. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I may have been fucking with you, but who knows? Yeah, it was um, all good. It was all good. Well, I appreciated I appreciated the commitment. <laughs> well. Dude, you're the best, and all you did was crush it today. Uh, I'm so happy to see you, Brennan. Thank you for having me on this on your on your great show. I love your show. Well, thank you, thank yep. you, thank you, uh, and to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing, growing exponentially. But come on, what the fuck was that? It was Brian Darcy James just fucking crushing it? Uh, and of course, the Brando Cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Start on the tracks, waving.